In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I'm so excited. I have an incredible individual here who I admire and I've seen their work. And I think that the entire audience is really going to enjoy this podcast. I have Miss Susan Gunner. She grew up in London. She's a holistic psychotherapist. She's the host of her own podcast, the Psychedelic Conversations Podcast. And she offers... Um, something called the reset program, which is like a microdosing program. And before we get into that, I just wanted to offer you an opportunity to maybe fill in any blanks that I may have left out there. Hi, George. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, that's, that's accurate. So that's the kind of things that I do. Um, passionate about conversations, building communities, making friends, and also uh, bringing as much education into this psychedelic renaissance that we're currently experiencing. That's the passion. Yeah, it's what an amazing time to be alive, right? It's there's mm -hmm. so much happening and it seems as if it's happening quicker and quicker and the results are becoming more profound. Did you wanna share maybe your story? Like how, how did you find yourself where you are today in the midst of talking to all these influential people and going out of your way to try and make people's lives better. I'm, I'm assuming you, at some point in time, you had to make your own life better. But how did you get here? Yeah, that's, a, that's always my favorite question <laughs> that I ask my guests as well. So, yeah, I'm always curious about how people find their way into the mm -hmm. psychedelic sphere. So um, I, I began studying psychology very early. Um, I think we all are psychologists in our own ways, yeah. uh, even if we don't know it. And then I started developing interest in, um, you know, asking the bigger questions. Uh, and that came through a family member of mine when I spent uh, most of my childhood, actually. And this individual happened to be really, really challenged mentally. Uh, that kind of put me on the trajectory on this path of like asking bigger, bigger questions. And then 
Then I started getting interested in psychology, wanting to study the traditional uh, modalities. And through this journey, I developed more curiosity around, so, okay, what is the, the body's role in healing, in transformation, in changing our perspective and mind? So all of that led me to somatic therapy. Then continued on my journey just literally looking for out-of-the-box modalities to bring to people because through my observation, nobody was healing, nothing was changing, and people are just functioning and they were just coping uh, with their symptoms and managing. And I thought there has to be something. We can't just be managing. There has to be something that could bring people the breakthrough. And around those times, I then stumbled upon psychedelic medicines. It's, it's so interesting to see the Ariadne thread that seems to point the way out the maze for all of us. And, it, you know, when I talk to people, I find myself drawn to people that may have suffered similar or deep traumas. And, and that's one thing I've noticed about psychedelics, at least to a degree, is that it seems like the people that have been dramatically affected by trauma seem to gravitate towards higher doses or seem to gravitate towards something that's stronger. Have you noticed that in some of the people that you've spoken to? I have. I have. And I'm always talking about the same subject. And, you know, my understanding is it's not about the dose. It's never dose dependent. It is never dose dependent. We need other elements into the mix. It's not just about how much can we ingest mm. or how much can we take. Um, if anything, we could, the more, you know, in, in that kind of approach, we can literally lose the intention and why mm. we started here in the first place. And we can kind of take a, a whole different path and get more confused, get more lost, and it can become more, you know, confusing, a disorienting place for a lot of people. So it is never about the dose. It's all about the container. It's mm. all about the conditions and being deliberate in our intention. Let me push back on that just a little bit. Like sometimes it's about the dose, right? Like if I take like a micro dose versus say like a large dose, maybe it's dose dependent on what it is. Maybe it's dose dependent on the conjunction with your intention. Because if there's some, you know, if there's this giant Gordian knot that you need to pull super hard to get the thing out of there, then like you may need a little bit more of the medicine or you may need someone there with you. But on some level, it has to be about the dosage, or, or I don't know, maybe it doesn't. But do you think that there's what, what does dosage have to do with it? Yeah, so um, I love uh, one of my favorite mm -hmm. traumatologists, Dr. Bezo Wanderkoff. I think a lot of people know about him. Uh, the body keeps the score. After listening, yeah, I, after listening to his um, sharing on a research they did among the veterans, I think it was. Mm. Um, they put these, you know, EEGs on their brain just to, just to kind of measure their brain waves and what they are, you know, going through in this high doses of psychedelic medicines. And what they've noticed is that their body uh, uh, started dumping high levels of uh, their own chemicals to mm. block to block the med the psychedelic substance. So as soon as obviously they created conditions, there were sounds, a smell, you know, that reminded them of mm. them, their own, you know, experience of trauma. And, and they all started blocking out. So our bodies can intelligently create our own chemicals and 
counter the whole thing. So there is that. And we see this again and again. Um, I guess we can look at it through a, a trauma lens. People who have gone through really deep wounds and trauma and they carry a lot of these, you know, blocks and experiences, then uh, surely there's another way of working. Uh, but then the average folk can take many different layers of, and doses. Of course, the experience will be different, different but uh, because my area, my specific area is the trauma-informed, so I'm always focused on that. Yeah, it's, do you, have you found that each individual is unique and then that, and that each individual may respond to a different dose or may, maybe not only dose, but a different sort of combination of therapy, integration and dose. It seems like while there may be a standard that works close for everybody, that each individual is calibrated to a certain set of parameters. Have you found that to be true? Mm. Uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, yes and no. So I have my own ideas on that one. Um, so George, like if I mean, for our listeners, I'm sure you have this incredible show that a lot of the people who came here talked about trauma, but let's just define what trauma yeah. is, for example. Um, yeah. Again, this is coming from Dr. You know, Peter Levine. A lot of people are probably familiar with somatic experiencing, the founder of the somatic experiencing. And he says trauma happens when there is no choice, lack of choice, mm. lack of choice. And it's too overwhelming to the system and which leads to disconnection from our, mm. ourselves. So in that, if we look at that definition, I think a lot of us probably would agree they some, some, somewhere you know, on their timeline experience similar experiences. And so when we look at this, um, and also we bring in the element of trauma being the relational result of a relational experience uh, stemming from very, very earlier on when we're impressionable kids. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all of these different elements, then somebody, I mean, the trauma-informed piece for me is very, very important. And when I bring it to any space, that is kind of my key element that I really focus and trauma-informed pieces that we acknowledge that all of us, big T, small T, somewhere or another way, we are trauma survivors, right? So having that sensitivity and having that um, acknowledgement, it creates an amazing container for the person to come in and do their work. And for me, uh, the psychedelic medicine's always been secondary compared to what I can bring in first. For example, if trauma happens relationally, then mm -hmm. we have to be super mindful of being the facilitator, the mediator, the facilitator is the key person, yeah. mm -hmm. and then the container, and then the conditions that are created for this person to go through their own experience and always, always comes back down to facing what really traumatized them in the first place. And that level of healing requires a lot of holding, a safe container, a connection, trust. Mm. And also the facilitator must kind of pick up all these cues and there's, there's a lot of nuances involved. And um, for me, it's always, you know, psychedelic medicines are the secondary compared to what we can create deliberately. Yeah, that is really well said. Um, it brings up a question that I, I find myself more and more thinking about is, what do you think is the relationship between healing and learning? 
learning as in um, like they seem so they seem almost synonymous. like at, at times learning and healing seem interchangeable to me even though both of those words are, are you know if we define healing as a way to understand what happened to me and make peace with it versus learning as as we could define learning as maybe creating or understanding a new skill set that makes my life more functional. Like, so it seems to me that both of those words, healing and learning are something that happen in the process of treating trauma. But I, I don't know, they seem similar to me, but on some levels they seem different. And I'm just wondering as someone who works with people, do you treat those two things differently when you're working with someone? There are levels. Mm -hmm. So there are levels of um, what people need. For example, we have uh, a category of people where they really, really struggle. There's mm. host of mental health illness, you know, disorders. Yeah. There's lots of mental health complications. So uh, they require a specific uh, approach. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk about the the just for the sake of the conversation. Sort yeah. of Generally. Um, I think healing, transformation, learning, unlearning all mm. happens at the same time, simultaneously. Um, I mean, we can literally heal someone from trauma without even talking about it through creating conscious containers. Um, somehow, you know, our early experiences, uh, I mean, for me, trauma or, or, or suppressed, you know, uh, survival energies, suppressed uh, emotions um, are just, uh, you know, part of our early life that we had no choice over. We had to develop these mechanisms, copings, defenses mm. to adapt our early environment um, so that we can survive. And somehow this uh, has disconnected us from nurturing uh, healthy relationships. Like we don't know what to do with we don't have any grasp of what is a healthy relationship. <laughs> like biggest challenge, right? Um, I mean, this is like uh, among my friends who are therapists, like somatic therapists, we always have this inside joke. Like in order to heal, we need other bodies. We just can't mm. do this alone. We need other people. We cannot do this alone. And one of my favorite, you know, passion is to create containers, communities, group processes, because one can learn so much in a group, group sessions or group containers, coming together with all different walks of life, you know, it becomes so confrontational to their prejudice or to their <laughs> programs or to their limitations. And suddenly it's like, um, um, you know, super learning sort of container, like you, you, everything's amplified. So um, literally can cut 10, 20 years of therapy. This is very powerful. Um, you bring in everyone together and this is a deliberate conscious container. Believe me, that's like, for me, the ultimate healing space, regardless of what mod modality is used because trauma is what um, disconnects us from ourselves, that mm. then we are disconnected from our environment and then those people so then when we operate from 
when we operate from that lack energy, you know, I talk about the lack energy, which means uh, when, you know, again, uh, template growing up, we don't have these healthy models and healthy templates that we couldn't, we couldn't just follow, copy, learn from. Therefore, um, it becomes like you are operating from this lack energy, which means unmet needs. So your, mm. your needs weren't met. So then you develop these, there's, you know, um, unavailable parents, for example, right? Lack, not enough to go around, lack, like food-wise, like shelter, security, safety, all of these compromised. So you inevitably uh, begin to operate from this lack energy template. Uh, for me, uh, this is what trauma is. A lot of us carry this. I mean, I am yet to meet anyone so regulated and, and positive and really have gone through, you know, the work of this to understand what they are dealing with. And this all comes down to understanding ourselves through other people. Because if we can start to, like, for me, it's, um, you know, when people come to me for help in sort of like financial or, you know, they have this anxiety or depression or something like that. The first thing is like, how are your relationships? Because for me, that's like a direct measurement of where they are in understanding themselves and how they are operating in the world. Wow, I, I love it. I, I once heard a story about a, a rabbi that had said something similar. And he had said, if you are you and I am I, and I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. Like we need each other in order to understand who we are. And if you look at Carl Jung's work, it's the same thing. Like if you see people like a mirror, then you get a really good example of how you are interacting in the world. And I think it's beautiful. I, what, can, you def, can you define somatic healing for me? Yeah. So just want to quickly say before yeah. we move on to Please. that one. So, um, you know, there are so many things out there now. So many people are reading stuff like, yes, the other person is your direct mirror. You know, mm. like, for example, we have this concept of relationships, romantic relationships being a container. Have you have heard of that model? I'm, I'm new to the container model, but I'm just kind of picking up on it. It sounds beautiful. Container means like a, an agreed space you go into with, with another, right? Um, so, for example, romantic relationships, mm -hmm. right? They are the best containers for self-growth. Do they have different shapes, the containers? Like what a romantic, yeah, okay. Yeah, of course, of course. Because mm -hmm. in, in that romantic relationship is where all of our templates play out everything everything we've learned mm. uh, impulses mm -hmm. limitations attachment disorders everything gets to play out in that container of a relationship so you know we can read so many books about the other person being the direct mirror but nobody knows how this works out how does it how do we work with this like nobody nobody not not nobody but people do understand but how do we grasp it on a level that we are entering with an agreement that this is a healing space, right? So in a group therapy, I'll give you a quick example. In yeah, a group, group, group therapy, for example, the initial thing would be everybody will be scanning each other. Mm -hmm. And then in their minds, they're already making judgments, mm -hmm. criticism, uh, judging someone's hair or the way they dress up or the way they sound and speak. And then eventually they will start judging their opinions, their comments, and then 
and then you'll have people clicking, meaning they kind of start to rescue each other. There's a lot of like uh, um, support, but in a toxic way. And then mm. it's like every sort of like uh, unaware template start to show up in the space. So we pay attention to that. So that's, that's kind of like the, the powerful container we can create to learn from others. But what is it triggering within us? If I'm starting to judge you, your hair, your clothes, how, you know, your, your opinions, mm -hmm. then that's very much related to what I'm holding inside. So we need to really clarify. There's a lot of people, you know, resent and they repent group containers. Somehow the unconscious knows that if they do come in, there's going to be a lot of confrontation. So we'll avoid any confrontation at all cost. But this is healing. Healing doesn't come from sitting in 100 ceremonies of ayahuasca. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Healing comes from coming back into our mundane and our relationships, our work, everything we do in our physical life. And then that's kind of like the direct mirror of where we are on our evolutionary journey. And, you know, we can be the best navigator in the psychedelic space. But if our relationships are still struggling and we have all these other challenges that we just can't overcome, we just don't know where to, like we have hit the wall, we're stuck, but we're just so great at these ceremonies and we could literally drink, you know, five days, you know, on and nothing. You know, it, it's, it, do you understand what I mean? It's like, yeah. my passion is always like, can we now bring it home? What we can do there, can we bring it home? And uh, <clears throat> we can tie it in with the somatic therapy. For example, um, for me, psychedelic medicines are really somatic. They activate our nervous system. There's like a lot of expansion. <clears throat> we feel it in our bodies. Uh, so many suppressed material comes up, arises. There's, there's lots of releasing, physical releasing, purging. This is somatic. And somatic therapy, which is the, you know, Peter Levin, Dr. Peter Levin founded, he talks about how trauma is held in the body. Therefore, we need to bring the body on board if we want that full whole healing process. That's what the somatic therapy is. Bringing the body, body consciousness, the body awareness into the healing space. It's fascinating to me. I I want to just backtrack a little bit because there's something that I, when we talk about, do you think that alienation, we talked about relationships and the relationships that we hold with other people in containers is a direct reflection of who we are. And that brings, the question to me comes up is, is alien alienation. Like we have, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably all felt alienated at some point in time or whether it's an accurate thing to feel or not. Do you, what role does shared sacrifice play in alienation? Because it sounds like when you're getting people together, they're being forced to not to, to sacrifice themselves a little bit in that they must show themselves to other people. And that's a kind of sacrifice. And what, what do you think is the role there between alienation and shared sacrifice? Do they are they together or do they play a role in, in each other? And it seems like a lack of rituals that we have today, a lack of, um, you know, uh, like uh, 
I can't think of the word, like a quinceanera or a rite of passage. Like there's so few rites of passage and there's so few rituals that we do as a group anymore. Is that and that that seems like it may lead to alienation. So what is the role there between alienation and shared sacrifice? If you think about alienation uh, in early time, age, um, it's alienation, but you're still with others. Um, there's still people in, in your life. There's still uh, some carer or, you know, if the parents are not around, there's someone that there's always people. It's almost like, you know, it's our human nature to be around with people. The alienation becomes the, the, the template, but um, you still need to function and you still need to connect and be with other people. So that the alienation, I'm not exactly sure how you want to bring it in, but the way that I understand, kids that, has been, kids that have been alienated or isolated or grew up in um, environments that weren't seen, for example, uh, when, you, when they come into grown-ups, you know, when they come into the containers, group, mm -hmm. group sessions, um, they behave the same. They continue their template. They continue... Um, thinking that nobody's noticing them, that they are just being unseen. So this template is so powerful that it, get, it plays out in those kind of uh, environments. So then uh, the facilitator's role is to kind of point it out. Sometimes people are not aware of the templates that they are actually playing this out in these group sessions. For example, give you an idea. Um, uh, for example, like when there was a circle, one of our participants said that, you know, she don't belong there. Like it was a female participant. Like she just suddenly felt like she doesn't belong here. And then once we, and it was really, really disorienting for her to be in, in such an intense, you know, sort of group uh, circle. And um, well, after a few days, a week, couple day, couple weeks, once we start digging into that, what does that mean? What, why do you feel that way? That it was quickly revealed that this was the pattern. She felt like that her, her entire life within her family system, uh, all the you know, work that, you know, in her career or job places, friendships, like she always felt like she don't belong to these places. And those kind of things play out really quickly and you can catch it so fast. If that makes sense. It makes total sense. I, I think of a, like an animal in a zoo sometimes. Like, you, like we take these animals, we put them in captivity. But if we want to put them back in the wild, you can't just throw them out there. You have to like let them get acclimated. And in some ways that makes me sad because it makes me think like maybe I'm an animal in a cage in this society, you know. And there's all these – while we have people around us, it seems like we're all alone together which is, that's kind of sad too. Like you have all these resources around you, but you're all alone together. And you, whether that's the rules of society or that's the patterns that our parents put upon us or that that's something that we've, we've learned, I, it does seem like the majority, would you agree with the statement that the majority of trauma in life comes from childhood trauma? I think big portion. I think we then develop predispositions that then lead to more trauma as we become grown-ups. It's a, it's that it's the the same uh, research study, isn't it? I don't know if you are aware of it. Again, they did this another whole 
research on the veterans and mm. um, the the ones that the ones that were affected mostly like developed PTSD for example they already had they already had predispositions from a very early age they were already vulnerable and uh, it's like um, not every soldier gets PTSD. Um, if, uh, if like uh, Dr. Garber, Mate, and all of these other traumatologists, they always say like if if the child is regulated well and um, they learn how to uh, have that self-regulation, this the system is working and they can bounce back in in the face of a challenge with the guidance of a grown-up who's present to them, uh, they become really robust in the in the uh, state. So, I think. Um, the vulnerability to continually be re-traumatized as a grown-up, like, you know, accidents, um, rejection, meeting people that continually abandon you and struggle with, like, finding people, uh, partners, you know, romantic relationships. It's hard to, like, navigate. That's, like, the most sensitive one. So all these things, I think, um, are the extension of what has been set uh, as a foundation, fundamentally, from a very early age. Um, I heard someone talk about this actually. I can't remember his name, but he said, "We assume what we consume." It's it's a very powerful. So even it the yeah. assumption of like I'm all alone in this world, right? Where does that come from? Like you said, you can be in a in a crowd of people yeah. and still feel alone. Yeah, I like that. I- if you see me doing so, I'm just writing stuff down. So I apologize for looking away. I'm, I'm usually writing down some notes. I, I like to go back and visit that. But I want to talk about this foundation a little bit about childhood or even as we begin a new container, we build a new foundation. And I'm wondering, language seems to be a giant problem for us. Like it fails and it's not reliable. It's it's really good, but it's not reliable because what I define, you know, we don't sit around in a conversation like, let's define all our terms. Like, the world would probably be better if we did that, but we don't. We have different experiences, different foundations. And so the language we use is a close approximation to our feelings. And I'm curious if the world of inner imagery might be something that psychedelics is fostering to help us communicate better. It seems like this, this imagery this inner, whether it's an auditory Im- illusion or, uh, you know, this, these things that we see, I'm wondering, in your opinion, is, is that something that we can use to help heal people? And it seems like psychedelics brings out that imagery and it, and it shows us, hey, maybe there's a better way to communicate. I know that's kind of, it's a little bit out there. I, I'm having trouble forming that exact question, but I think you may have the gist of it. What do you think? Yes, this is an interesting question. Um, I have a very different approach to working with psychedelic medicines. Okay. Right. Um, what I mean by that is uh, I don't limit it to, but I'm focusing mainly through a, a psychotherapeutic approach. Okay. And, you know, I love the whole mystical, you know, side of the experience. I love all the transcendental. It's all well and good, but... Um, for some reason, I find more value in just kind of helping people navigate this first level first, you know, which is the psychotherapeutic mm-hmm. space. And from what I understand, 
psychedelic medicines are, yes, they bring up stuff. They help us communicate, understand all of those amazing things. But what, what I also understand that these medicines are a revealing experience. They give us that, they are, they, they reveal what we hold inside already, uh, whether symbolically, metaphorically. And this is where it gets all confusing for a lot of people because people then take it literal and they run with that, which becomes a, a whole nother problem. So we need people in the psychedelic space to really understand and help people to navigate this space. For example, if someone has come into this to the medicines first time, uh, you can be sure the first on their first experience, unless they're blocking it, because we can, because our bodies are far more powerful than anything, they can block the experience as a protective mechanism because if that wound comes up, they may not be ready and they may not have the capacity to hold it, to process it. Therefore, unconscious is super clever, especially mm. uh, in some cases. You know, um, some people are hypervigilant in their nervous system that they would not open up, even if they're, I mean, in my time I've experienced this. I, I observed people taking three cups of ayahuasca and sleeping through it. So I have seen people literally shutting down everything. And then, and then I have seen people just the one spoon and that they're kind of like having a psychotic break. It's interesting, this is. So obviously we don't know all of these answers why and how, but what I understand is that I always think that the facilitator is very the key mm -hmm. and then the medicine is secondary. If, if people really want to come into the space and understand and learn about themselves, they really need someone who gets it, who understands and helps them to navigate and also interpret their experiences because that can, that's kind of where the, there's a fine line there. And if we can catch it, then you can literally put this person on a, um, you know, increased momentum of healing process or transformational process. Um, for example, sometimes, you know, people feel, existential pain in these uh, psychedelic experiences, right? One might say, of course, you know, one might mm -hmm. say, like, I remember uh, one participant saying something like, wow, I'm just, I'm just feeling the pain for the collective, like everyone, everyone in the world. I feel like I'm carrying their pain on me, like I'm carrying them. That's the level of pain I'm feeling right now. But if you think about it, George, a two-year-old infant, when they feel pain, that's what they feel, like catastrophic levels of pain. So a grown-up can easily translate that or interpret that as, I'm feeling the pain of the collective and bypass that this is their own suppressed pain. How do we know that's what a two-year-old feels though? Like, I mean, can you see that in brain patterns or does that manifest itself in long-term adulthood trauma? But like, it seems kind of subjective to me. Like, how do you, how do we know? Like, I can understand an abandoned child is scarred forever. However, how do we, like, how do we put that into words? Like, how do we know that? 
Yeah, so there are so many people doing great studies and research. Um, sorry, I'm not so good with referencing names. There's a lady that she studied these infants, like age mm -hmm. between, I think, three to five. Um, I think she says something like children are on psychedelics anyway. Like <laughs> children are in that psychedelic state. Yeah, totally. So, so think about yourself mm. in a psychedelic experience. Everything is online on a multi-dimensional, like multi, multi, like everything, all the, um, all the sensory, you know, uh, yeah, sure. the, all online, right? You hear, uh, you're hearing, you're seeing, you're feeling all at once, but they are amplified. Imagine that's how children feel and hear and observe and see and feel at that level. So when they feel pain, it's like end of the world for them. And if they have the rage, they rage. They, they you know, have the tantrum. I mean, I'm sure you've seen them. They kind of literally go on the floor and roll around. Imagine that. So they express it. They express how intense they are. And they're very intense. Kids are very intense. They live their emotions. They express it so intensely. So these are kind of the cues and the clues. But um, there are so many researches have been done. There is a wonderful lady, Gul Dolan. I, I remember her name because she's very, very important in this study, in this research space. Um, she was looking at the, you know, psychedelic and autism, you know, that kind of angle. She was studying a lot of stuff. And then she's the one that talked about the critical window, for example, and which is the hyperneuroplasticity. And uh, her argument was that when grown-ups ingest psychedelic substances in that experience there is a time an opening which is she calls it the critical window in that space everything gets amplified the learning the unlearning the social uh, connection and and everything and she kind of associated associated that with the early model when kids learn at that fast level yeah, I, so, I can, I can see yeah. that. It, so there are lots of, lots of, you know, research studies that conf can confirm. Again, you know, we don't know for sure. We can just say that they are doing amazing work understanding this. Yeah, it's on some level. It seems to me. Do you, do you see yourself as the medicine as much as the psychedelics are the medicine? Like when when you talk about the facilitator and how important they are on some level you're acting as the medicine. Is that fair to say? Yes, you can say that. You can, or, or a mediator. Yeah. Um, mediator, you know, mediator between. And also, um, so we need to also be really careful about bringing in the psychedelic medicine tools in the healing spaces. Mm. When, when um, you know this as well, a lot of people who are attracted to or drawn to psychedelic medicines because they have such deep, deep wounds and there's a mm. lot of trauma or there's a, you know, there's something there, you know. That, um, so if someone is already feeling called to psychedelic medicines, that's kind of, for me, is an indicator that um, there is a sensitivity that we need to be careful how we bring these people in, how we take care of them, how we help them integrate. What I mean by that is, um, for example, for me, um, 
again, I'm going to reference another psycho psychotherapist. He says, you know, in psychedelic spaces, people are so into ego dissolution, right? Ego death. Let's, let's get rid of the ego, kill it, drag it out, you know, whatever. But, um, but in the psychology space, we know that we cannot transcend something we haven't developed first in the first place. So in order to transcend and kill the ego, we need to have a mature ego first. Uh, what I mean by that is if we look at the um, people with deep trauma, mm -hmm. they haven't developed they haven't developed their ego in order to dissolve it. So they have a very fragmented self-understanding, self fragmented self-awareness. So when they go into the psychedelic space, guess what gets amplified? The fragmentation gets amplified. So they, instead of, instead of um, learning who they are and their trauma and, 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 and increasing the self-awareness, they it, it is the opposite. They go further away from self-awareness. And then these fragmented pieces get amplified. That's why we see people having one ayahuasca ceremony and then believing that they are the return of Messiah and they're here to save the world, right? Mm. Things like that. So, and then people claim that they had uh, ego dissolution and things like that. So we, th these are the dangerous territories that we need to trod really carefully. So when we, that's why I love the psycho psychotherapeutic approach in the medicine work, because if someone comes to me with full dissociation, imagine they've never felt the pain, their body never allowed them to be in pain. They just checked out in the first event of uh, a traumatic event and they never learned how to process grief, pain, loss. So our, our job is to firstly help them reconnect, help them open up, crack the shell that they have created so thick and so protective. And then in the future, they can do whatever they want. They can kill their ego and do whatever they want. But initially, it's our responsibility uh, to help them reconnect and have that self-awareness. Once they know who they are and they, they are aware of their tendencies, if there is a, um, because all these, you know, fragmentations, they create narcissistic tendencies, borderline tendencies. There's loads of different like tendencies that could actually um, distract us and take us further away from transformation and healing. So we need to be super careful of that. Yeah. I it seems to me that we need not look too far back in the past to see some potential problem, problematic relationships with facilitators and medicine and, and programming. Like if you look at Jonestown or Manson or the people that maybe get the holy man syndrome, you know, it's not that these people are dumb or they're, they're lacking. They're, they're incredibly persuasive and they have this ability that that maybe it's maybe it's maybe they're finding people that need help or maybe they are helping them in some ways but i'm always 
it is dangerous. It's a it's a dangerous position to put yourself in. Even you as a facilitator, like I gotta think that feeling the level of reward you get from helping people is addictive in its own nature. And like, is there, well, how do you make yourself aware of that? Or are there things that you do to be like, Hey, wait a minute, I'm helping, but it's, I'm actually just trying to give these people back a narrative that they can work with. Like, how do you, how do you navigate that space? Yeah. Such a great question, George. So if you look at the indigenous way of working with the medicines, it's a lineage. Right? There is a lineage of wisdom. There is a, a lineage that people feel accountable to the one, you know, older, someone older than them. It's a lineage. So, for example, if, a, uh, if you meet a family, like a medicine family in, in Amazon, um, I don't know if they still exist now, but in the past, um, because I... My foundational work was work with um, was with a native from Peru, and she would tell us all these stories. Like you would need to be an apprentice for so long, and then there is also like each uh, age. For example, when you're 20, you'll do you'll be allowed to do certain things. When you get to 30, something else, and then 40, 50, like. I remember her teacher was in her 60s back then and she was finally like the the main sort of maestro you know really kind of able to navigate this this space and also scan people and give advice and so on and so forth and those elders then will be watching the younger ones and keep them in check and accountable so this is how they kind of manage the you know, the bypassing or people claiming like, I mean, you know, now in the West, if you look at the Western model, you probably meet everyday people who are claiming they are healers. But who is, who is, who are they accountable to? Who's watching over? And how are they, how do they know they are healers, for example? Right? So these are the things that we need to be really careful the way that I navigate this space is that I have two people that are always watching and I am accountable too. And they always, always question my motives just to keep me in check. And we need these people. And these people already have gone through a lot of work themselves. You know, they, they kind of understand this whole bypassing, projection, transference, like all of these things that we could bring when we help people, like all of these things that play out insidiously. We're not even aware of it unconsciously. So we need other people to keep us accountable and we need to continually simultaneously do our own work, always learning, always, you know, uh, being mindful of our own motives and our needs. I like that. That's really well said. I'm glad. I'm. I'm really glad you said that. I think it's a incredible insight, and in especially in the way in which we seem to be moving nowadays. You know, when we when we monetize wellness, we begin to find ourselves on a really slippery slope. You know, we have people that probably are really good people and they care, but because of the way Western medicine is set up, and maybe even monotheism or maybe even the culture we live in you know it's it's not 
always set up to heal people. It's set up to see people as a means to an end. And I, I think that that in itself can be dangerous. I'm that's, and that is one reason I'm excited to speak with you and other people and learn more about this space is because I think that we have a real opportunity ahead of us to, to do some real healing with people. And what, can you maybe help us think about some things that you're excited about and maybe some pitfalls that you see that we should be trying to, to, to watch? Yes. So, um, so the pit, one of the biggest one is the fact that apparently we need about hundred thousand therapists trained real quick <laughs> in the next, next two years. So, so now you tell me, and we're looking at, and, and these medicines, have been part of cultures for thousands of years. They have the only way they managed to navigate and incorporate them into, into life, into their lives, because they were able to create communities. People like the, the whole concept of having elders in a community, not in a hierarchical way that, you know, these are better and the rest are not good, not like that. I mean, people who carry wisdom that are celebrated and respected and they always given guidance. So imagine now we take, we are ripping this model and then we're going to put it into this Western model, as you said, <laughs> to monetize it. Yeah. And then now we have this gap of like 100,000 therapists that needs to be trained up really fast. That's really scary. Because, um, like I said, for me, um, psychedelic medicines are always secondary. Initially, my work is about creating rapport, creating trust, building relationship with the person, bringing them in, creating conditions. There is a whole lot going on. There's a relationship building. People need to build a relationship before they can touch their trauma. Psychedelic medicines don't do that for us. It's, it's the space, it's the, 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 you know, it's the container, it's the setting, it's the intention that does this for us. So now, this whole process, if we compress it to one ceremony, there you go, there's your ceremony, go and sit, sit with the medicine and you'll be healed. Like this is another pitfall because mm -hmm. can we come back to our earlier conversation when I said before we can dissolve the ego, we need to build it. So if, if we're working with vulnerable people who have never had a choice, never had opportunity to develop themselves, never had autonomy, self-agency, never even could think for themselves, imagine when they access such powerful substances. It could be a disaster because they overnight might feel limitless, Mm. or the opposite, suicidal. Because I remember like one participant when she said, I am feeling the pain of the collective, like wow. literally carrying it all on my shoulder and I don't think I can do this. Like um, just to give trigger warning to our listeners, she almost fell into the traps of the suicidal ideation because she just thought that she just couldn't carry this pain anymore for the collective and this wasn't her job and this is not her life, shouldn't be her life. So then she fell into the, the you know, 
deep depressive states. So it can go the other way. People get amplified and ego gets stronger and their needs for validation, recognition gets really amplified and then they go off with medicines in their pockets and offering it to everyone. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I I don't think that particular issue is discussed enough, you know, so, yeah. or how many people that may not be trained as a therapist begin working with someone and then they abandon them because they don't either they don't know what to do or they themselves are scared and now all of a sudden you have this person that's been broken wide open and they're just probably worse yeah. off than they were before. Exactly. So I'll give you another example. Sure, John. please. So when I did my initial foundational work with my native friend. Um, obviously, she had to travel to Europe and she had to travel to other countries. There are, you know, she started meeting a lot of Western people and they were coming to her dieters in Peru. Obviously, she started hosting dieters, uh, dieter meaning, you know, more uh, deeper sort of detoxing sort of uh, approach to medicine. And I remember talking to her and I said, what is your biggest challenge? working with the, the people from the West as opposed to your native, you know, people that you know, your native, you know, your family, your, your people. She said, um, very different mindset, very, very different mindset. It's almost like they have a very um, strong set in their mindset where, one, they want a quick healing, like today. Can we get it done with? Like, can we just do it today? And then I can go home tomorrow. Like that kind of mindset. And then another one that she said was um, challenging. Like they don't understand the word trust. Like you need to trust your inner, inner wisdom. And they were like, hmm, who? It is like unheard of. And then the relationship with the plant. Like relationship with the plant? You're kidding. Like what kind of relationship with the mm -hmm. plants, right? So she very quickly, she realized that the Western people need a Western model. Mm. And that brings me to um, talking about the therapeutic model. I think going forward, we, we all need to be uh, psychotherapeutically informed. Like we need to understand uh, trauma. We need to be trauma informed, for example. Uh, in the West, uh, children are being neglected. Parents are working really hard. They are, they are unavailable emotionally, um, which doesn't often happen other parts of the world where they live in community settings. There's always someone, there's always a grown-up readily available for kids, willingly, with love, you know. I remember, like, luckily I caught that little bit of that life when I was growing up earlier. There's always like aunts and cousins everywhere. There's always people lovingly wanting to share their food with you. You know, there's always this community spirit. But if you look at the, the dense cities of the, you know, corporate West, look at this lifestyle. Now we bring psychedelic medicines to these people. All they want is fix their problem tonight to go back to their corporate job tomorrow. Mm. Right. That's the, that's the issue. So if we at least bring psychotherapeutic understanding to some of these issues of our early life that could manifest in our 
psychedelic experiences, how to navigate it, how to understand it, what's the distinction, what is mine, what is the medicine showing, um, how do we uh, metaphorically, symbolically understand these experiences, right? We need a Western model for people to understand and navigate this space. For example, um, in medicine space, I know that suddenly, like the circles, for example, like, you know, in Peru, there are, there are um, malocas. You've got like 20 people on mattresses, mm -hmm. right? Guess what happens there? Everyone's in that experience. Within hours, suddenly, your next door neighbor becomes representation of your unavailable mother. Suddenly, the facilitator becomes the abuser of your, in, in your past as a kid. Suddenly, they become that representation of that person. And then, how do you deal with that? Right? Suddenly, all of these people start to represent little parts of their early memories. It's inevitable. It happens in these vulnerable spaces. So how does one navigate that? How does the facilitator understand it? When do you know, like, when can you catch someone is acting out their early memories? Right. It was so, it's so evident if you just watch it. So there's, there's a lot of education we need to bring um, psychotherapeutically, I believe. It's fascinating to me. I, you know, I, it brings up so many questions to me, like, you know, different plants thrive in different environments and different nutrients are provided to different plants that help them grow in different environments. And when we talk about models, if we, if we just use that same sort of like analogy, if, if the, if the West, if, if the people in the West are, you know, you can't grow ayahuasca in cold weather, you know, you can't grow certain trees are not going to fruit in certain climates. And so, you know, to what end is it is it worthwhile to try to export a therapy that does well in this one environment but not over here in this environment i mean it you can't you could like if you have time and you're doing a phenomenal job of helping people around you but is it something that can be exported to the west you know maybe it can't be mm, yeah this is great and I also had an amazing conversation on, on my podcast with Darren LeBaron. I think a lot of people know him. He's incredible. He said, you know, he said, um, each, medicine, each medicine is given to a specific region, like mm -hmm. part of the planet, like Iboga being in right. Africa and then, you know, Ayahuasca being in South America and then mushrooms all over the world, for example, right? Sure. So... He always, he, he said something like, there are gatekeepers, you know, there are gatekeepers that, that um, are, you know, caring and they are looking after and, and guarding these medicines. So I'm sure in the West, we can definitely access another medicine. Like, for example, mushrooms don't belong to a specific, I mean, they do, like uh, Mexico, the Mazatecs, well-known, documented. Sure. But if you look at it, they are everywhere. They grow in your backyard. They are everywhere. So maybe we can just work with what we have around us. I yeah. mean, if, if, if there's a calling to go to Peru to sit in an ayahuasca, please go. Yeah, please do it. If, if, if you trust the, 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 the place, the organization, the facilitators, by all means. But I think 
for me, I'm very practical when it comes to psychedelic medicine work because I come from this psychotherapeutic work. I always believe in, yes, you know, there's room for exploration in consciousness, the mystical, the transpersonal, but I feel like I'm so narrowing down my Mm. attention right now to people need help so fast now, especially living in this post-pandemic world. Everything's just amplified, anxiety, levels of anxiety, depression. I think we're going to see the real, real repercussions of what happened to us in 2020. In the next few years, it's going to be more intensified. So my idea is that can we be more practical? Can we bring it to people in a therapeutic way so they can learn to, you know, heal themselves, create communities where they feel safe, can come and talk and just help them, help them go back into their life and thrive again, right? This is like, this is so narrowed focus of mine, but I love it. It's just being so practical. Um, also spiritual because my understanding of spiritual is actually mastering the mundane Mm, if we yeah if we can have imagine having beautiful relationships just imagine having functioning connected relationships around you as a human being that's a gift having shelter having food having everything you need friendships imagine you're thriving here in this in this physical world to me, that's spiritual. That's the spiritual that we seek. So for me, that's like the, the sacred mission right now to, to help people really, you know, own their lives, come back to that thriving, the creativity again, and uh, yeah, really function well in the, in the environment. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating to think about the times we're in. You know, I, I, I had a really good conversation with uh, Dr. Jessica Rochester and she was talking about tests and she was talking about the times we're in because, you know, you get tested your whole life. And when you go to school, you get tested, you test the people in your life for relationships. Why wouldn't your spirituality be tested? Why wouldn't your ideas in this world be tested? And as I began thinking about that, I thought to myself of, of this pandemic that we've gone through. And I like the language you used about the narrowing or like the, the things that are kind they kind of seem like they're closing in a little bit. And in some ways it almost seems like the cycle of life. Like it's like a rebirth and, and, and just like a birth, they call it the miracle of birth because there's a real chance a child can die in birth. And it happens all the time. Like a lot, it happens. And it kind of seems that that's where we are now is in this place where we are struggling to be born as a new society. Like and you can see the birth pangs all around us. People are struggling. Whereas people talking about nuclear war at a level that is pornographic in nature. And we see people in our own community that are all alone together that are struggling and you can see it on their faces. And so I, while I see the narrowing happening, when I talk to people like you and I'm, I'm, I talk to a lot of really cool people and, you know, I, I, I feel inspired to want to help my neighbor to be the best that I can be so that people around me can be better, whether it's helping people reach Maslow's hierarchy of needs of food and shelter. But I see this narrowing as something positive, Susan. Like I see us becoming better because we're being forced to be better. And I feel like there's this 
spiritual mother. It's like, listen, you dummies, time to get together and start making it better. I want all of you to line up, start helping each other. Otherwise, we're done. And I kind of feel like this narrowing is a hyper focus of us becoming better. And I, while struggling and while scary, I see it as a really positive point in our evolution as humans. Like, do you, do you see that positive? Maybe it's the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe it's the light at the end of the birth canal that we're looking at and we should be scared, but do you see it as a positive time we're in? Yeah, I do. I do. Of course I do. Um, and if you look, I mean, if you look back into the history, there were times like this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the only thing that I don't hold on to. Like I'm not hanging on to the idea that this is it. Like we're here and we have arrived. I believe this happened to humans all the time, many times. Um, you probably know about Rumi, the A mystic. Little bit. Yeah, mm, yeah, mystic from Persia, for example, he has a tomb in Turkey and they were meditating for days on and fasting with his comrades or community members, whoever they were, studying together, asking big questions. And they, they, they built rooms that the ceilings were halfway. Do you know why? No. So, so that so that they couldn't stand up in rooms to humble them. So they can always, I'm serious. This is a That's crazy, beautiful. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so intense, right? Yeah. Like they couldn't even stand straight because it, their ego needed to be broken. So they just had to sort of, you know, lean, uh, bow down to go inside. And it was dark, no windows, things like that. And I'm always like, when we have these conversations with my friends, I'm always, surely they were saying the same thing. We're here. We have arrived. We're changing conscious evolution. Like we're waking up, surely, you know. <laughs> so I always think and believe that there are times in the history people come to these conclusions, these, you know, thresholds um, that, you know, we're kind of crossing a threshold. Uh, yeah. I feel like we're there again. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I, I'm thankful for it. I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous, but I, I don't think that's the right word. I, and I hesitate to use the word excited because it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. But I think I'm aware of it. I think being aware of it yeah. is the best that you can do, probably with most situations in life. And it's pretty healing in a way. This idea of awareness is, is since we're talking about that is. What, how do you define awareness? And do you use that as something that you could give to other people to help them? That's a fantastic question. And I think this is, uh, there is a lot of misconception and misunderstanding around awareness. Um, there are different layers, you know, as you said, layers of uh, being aware of, yes, I inhabit a body. Yes, I'm <laughs> in this planet, this planet in the void, right? In the space. Um, <laughs> Yes, I'm, you know, I can see you I, and you see me. There's a lot of levels of awareness. But what I focus, again, narrowing down, um, I have these tendencies to bring things to, to, to most simplified ways so that we can, yeah, like bite sizes. And my narrowed self-awareness um, concept would be like, can I be self-aware of myself? Mm. Can, I, 
can I learn how to connect to my intuition? And can I navigate from, live from inside out rather than depending on the environment? Can I get to that point of living from inside out? Like I don't need to run to a book or something or do you know what I mean? Like can I, I do. do this? Yeah. So, so this is like for me, this would be the ultimate self-awareness journey. And I think this is what we try to create in our communities. And I continually reinforce this. Like the self-agency piece for me is really big. Mm. Um, and there are obviously structures. There are processes that we take people through. And they do. They, they, they go through breakthroughs and the, 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 the ultimate realization of like how they've been living and what they haven't been seeing and the, the blocks and the deception that, 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 you know, all these things that they have invested and created externally kept feeding that deception. And it's beautiful when they start to, you know, start cracking those shells and then slowly coming uh, more self-aware. It's, it's, a, it's not easy, of course, but it's a beautiful, you know, process. Do you think it's beautiful because you get to see people walking down and, and doing something that you yourself did? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. I oh, think it is too. Is, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> just think about it. Um, yeah. How hard life is <sighs> when we continually operate from the lack, from the lack, the unmet needs, how hard life is when you're always operating from the survival, it's very exhausting. It doesn't leave room for creativity. There mm -hmm. is no room for, um, it, it, it dumbs down people's intelligence and creativity, right? Yeah. I've been there, I've been yeah. there. Yeah, I know, me um, too. So, so you're, you, the horizon is very narrow, like you can't break through, it's, it's, it's a vicious cycle and Seeing someone break through that, it's incredible. What was your catalyst for change? Like what, like what was it that where you were just like, you know what, this is enough. I, 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 there's a problem. I, I, I need, was, it, was there someone in your life that showed you a door or was it you getting to the ceiling and just pounding your way through? Like what, what was it for you that, that, that made you begin your journey? Pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pain, yes. Um, so in my understanding, you know, we talked about templates, right? So we grow up in environments that um, if, for example, sadness or addiction to suffering, mm. addiction to suffering, if addiction to suffering has been normalized in an environment and a child is born to that environment, guess what they do? They pick it up. You know, my biggest breakthrough came when I realized that um, this whole darkness, the shadow work, and, you know, slaying the dragons in the underworld, like all these concepts that, you know, a lot of us are so, like, passionately um, intrigued by and talk about and have these conversations around. In one of my ayahuasca ceremonies, I've only recently been started to talk about this because I have seen a lot more breakthroughs along these lines. 
in one of one of my medicine journey i was really prepared i was really going for it like that's it you know this pain is too much you know when you just hit rock bottom and you you like i need to get out of this this place i need to get out of here and i'm going i'm and i'm willing to do whatever it takes that's the narrative so i'm ready i'm going in to slay the dragons go into the underworld face my demons and i'm going to break this thing whatever this is and then an hour into the medicine the message was so clear what do you mean you want to go down to the underworld slay dragons and face demons Are you kidding me you know that's your home you love that place you live there <laughs> you you you're the boss of that place you actually employ these demons and dragons what are you talking about who are you kidding that's not your darkness joy is your darkness joy is very unfamiliar to your system you don't know what joy is that's your darkness and i was like wow so that was kind of like the the breakest uh, the greatest breakthrough and then the realization of that and an addiction to suffering that i continually made decisions based on that addiction to suffering and then continually perpetuated more suffering and then more suffering uh and yet i didn't know what joy feels like tastes like do you know what i mean it's so alien and then as i started to consciously allow myself to do things that gives me joy it was really threat to my system i didn't like it it was so uncomfortable then i realized okay this is what needs to be worked through so still a process still a uh, you know continued practice but i'm in a much better place so that template has now i can say kind of lost this power over me but if our listeners resonate i think we most of us most of us have that template that we're addicted to suffering and we continually perpetuate more suffering in our lives which is so unnecessary so that kind of my starting point coming into this work and then one of my mission or at least my intention is to show people that you know the association to the shadow work or the darkness or conquering conquering this underworld is is a false illusion it is not it's just another metaphorical way of perpetuating more suffering it doesn't have to be so we can work towards letting go of this template and we can create more joy and learn how to be in joy little step by step every day doing something different deliberately it's a lifelong commitment Yeah. Susan, you're lucky I don't have four more hours to talk to you because I would talk to you for another four hours. I feel like I feel like our conversation is just now beginning. Well, I, I've loved it all, but I really feel like right now we're starting to get into some things that I want to talk more about. That being said, I I I gotta go I gotta go to work and drive this truck around for a while and make some money for my family. I love it. I, I'm so excited to talk to you. This conversation has exceeded everything that I thought it would. I'm so excited for to listen to some more of your podcast. I'm really excited 
to to get to try to digest some of these things that you have told me and I can see without a doubt why people are flocking to your podcast and I can see why people want to be around you and I can see how much you care and I, I love it I'm, I'm really thankful for that and um I, I you're gonna have to come back because I don't I haven't I've only gotten through like one and a half pages of my five pages of notes over here. So <laughs> I would I, love to come back. Okay, I'd love good. to come back. I think, I think you're an amazing listener. I think you're an amazing um, question, like ask questions. And, and I think you really kind of know how to pull out things like the important things. I think you're an amazing podcaster, just so you know, and I really appreciate the work you're doing. You're just saying that because it's true. <laughs> it is um and i would love to be back okay okay back. we'll we'll set up some more and um maybe we can do some panels and stuff too I'm, i really want that to be the next step because i i think that once we've established a relationship then you can begin making new connections and having a new maybe we can create a new container you know i, I really love that analogy i'm gonna start trying to use it that being said before i let you go where can people find you what do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Amazing. Yes. Thanks for asking. So my website is psychedelicconversations.com and the podcast is Psychedelic Conversations uh, on YouTube everywhere, all platforms. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of like everywhere. If they type my name, I'm like everywhere, literally on every single social media platform. I, I'm curious. I love connecting with people. They can connect with me. I'm quite responsive. I just love building these relationships and connections. So like I said, I'm really curious. So I do like getting to know people. So what's exciting? Um, I'll be traveling to US. That's exciting. Oh, nice. That is. Yeah. So I'll be attending the um, Psychedelic Summit in Colorado, mm. end of June. And I'm really excited to meet those people that I have spoken on the podcast, to meet them in person. Uh, I know that I know some of them will be there and um, yes and then we're taking some of our work to Netherlands so good news we are going to start um, hosting medicine uh, circles in Netherlands from a psychotherapeutic angle and then if people are interested and uh, yeah there's so much in the in the pipeline but there's you know surely they can have uh, they can also subscribe to be informed so I, I, people in the chat, I, I, I would love to, I want to be better at this. Some people have mentioned some things in the chat and maybe we have just a few minutes to go over. Do you have a few more minutes maybe? Sure. Okay. Thank you. So we have Molly Wallace, who is hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation. This is a very astute point. Learning is intellectual and healing is somatic. Do you have any thoughts on that? I love that. This is my also... <laughs> This is my wheelhouse. <laughs> so one of the reasons that I love bringing in the psychedelic medicines as a tool is because they're so somatic. And it's almost like, you know, our nervous system, which us as individual weight containers, right? We have this chemical pharma, you know, organic, and this is the container. And then we bring in the medicine. Guess what? It's like two friends. Hello. And they work <laughs> amazingly. That's what I said earlier. Like we can literally help heal trauma without talking about it through the, the power of body, the somatic. Mm. It's beautiful. Thank you, Molly, for listening and being part of our conversation. And let's see, who else do we got here? We have... Um... We just we have some really nice compliments. 
Susan is nice. How about this one? Thank you. She is right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I thank you, Roos369, for coming in and, and being part of the chat and Molly and everybody else who has made an observation or, or a comment in here. Um, that that's that I am running low on time, and I really am thankful, Susan. I will reach out to you, and as soon as this is over, I'll I'll shoot you a MP3 and MP4 with the raw files. Feel free to use them however you want to, and um, I will reach out with another email shortly. So that's what I got to, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being thank part you. of this, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And that's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.